Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, let me introduce you to me and the purpose and point of this show. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That sent me, an evangelical in my early 20s, on a journey deep into the history of Christianity. I had to answer that question. I began looking into the history of the biblical canon, the history of tradition versus scripture, the history of what the church worshipped like and why my church worshipped differently than other churches. It was then, in that deep dive into history, that I encountered the ancient Catholic Church. It's inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. And it was then, as I began to study the history of Christianity, the history of Catholicism, through actual Catholic documents, through the actual teachings and writings of church fathers, of church officials, of Catholic theologians, it was then that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was oftentimes completely wrong. It was based more often than not on misinformation and simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by one of my dream guests. I'll be honest, guys, this was a fantastic interview, and I was so excited to speak to this guest. It's Dr. Holly Ordway. Dr. Ordway is a convert from atheism. She describes herself as an atheist academic who found God, first in Protestant Christianity, and eventually into the fullness of communion with the Catholic Church. It's an incredible interview about evangelization, about how the imagination can stimulate, can open up people to experience God and to ask bigger questions, and how we need to, as evangelizers, as evangelical Catholics, work hard to get that imagination, lay the groundwork for the message of Christ. It's a fantastic interview. I think you'll love it. I guarantee you, you'll acquire some new tools for your own evangelization toolkit. And if you are not a Catholic, if you are a non-Catholic or a non-Christian listener, I think this interview also will give you a lot to think about. It was a great conversation. And my deepest thanks to Dr. Ordway for having it with me. It was an absolute pleasure and privilege. If you want to help support this show and underpin conversations like this one, head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. A growing community there of people who work to help support this show financially. And guys, it's incredible. And you have my deepest thanks to all the patrons of this show that help to keep this thing going and keep this thing growing. That's patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Holly Ordway an atheist academic who became Catholic. It's a great story. Please listen and enjoy. Hey, 
friends, welcome back to the podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Holly Ordway. She is Fellow of Faith and Culture at Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire Institute. She has a PhD in English from the University of Massachusetts and is a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. She is the author of two fantastic books, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination from Emmaus Road Publishing, and Not God's Type, an Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms from Ignatius Press. Dr. Ordway, thank you for being here. Welcome to the show, and hello. Hello. It is a pleasure to be on here. I, I got to say, I these are two of my favorite books, uh, both page turners. I must say, I, I devoured both of them. You write fantastically. Uh, you're a fantastic speaker. I'm excited to, to hear your story unpacked. I know imagination and this idea of the Christian imagination figures into your own kind of conversion from this atheist academic into Christianity. So I definitely want to dig into that. But I want to begin, if we can, at the beginning for you. I want to know how, uh, because you describe yourself uh, as an atheist academic, were you were you born that way? <laughs> Well, I didn't quite come out of the womb holding a book, um, but almost. So the uh, the academic part is almost from birth. <laughs> uh, I was really, I grew up very much without any connection to religion. I think that's probably the best way to describe um, my childhood. Uh, my parents didn't raise me to be to be an atheist, but neither did they raise me to be in any way religious at all. Um, we didn't go to church. There was no Bible in the house. Um, there was there was no overt religion of any kind, nor any discussion of it. So it wasn't like they were telling me, oh, this is all silly. We just had to kind of cultural Christian trappings. Um, you know, at, at Christmas, there were Christmas carols in the stereo. Interestingly, and this is you know, something I mentioned in, in Not God's Type, we had a nativity scene, which peculiarly was, was never explained. It just appeared every Christmas. <laughs> But it was it was very interesting and evocative for me. I was fascinated by it. Um, but I wasn't. I really wasn't exposed to any any religious instruction at all, or any religious experience. Didn't you know have any interactions with the you know, friends that that brought me to church or anything like that? And so the result of it was that by the time I was a teenager, um, I had pretty sort of intuitively concluded that it, that there was no such thing as God. That it was all just made up. And this is a perfectly reasonable conclusion for me to have come to, because it turns out, in hindsight, um, my parents do have a spirituality, and they just didn't want to force it on me. They wanted me to make up my own mind about things. And I know there are parents who, with goodwill, take that same approach. But unfortunately, you can't not teach your children these things. So the lesson that I learned was not, this might be true, I have to find out. It was, it's not true, because if God exists, he's important enough that we should do something about it. We should talk about him. We should worship. And if we don't do that, then the natural conclusion is, well, then he doesn't exist. It's sort of a functional atheism. And that was the, that was the context that I had um, when I went, you know, went to college. And I went to University of Massachusetts Amherst, wonderful school academically. I, I had an extremely you know, good experience there. I went as an undergraduate went away for my master's, came back for my PhD, got a very strong education, but it was extremely secular. Uh, and so all, you know, what I was getting was, you know, Christianity is at best a historical curiosity, probably just a stupid superstition. All the smart folks are atheists. 
you can dabble, you know, in lighting candles. And Amherst is, is very much a hippie kind of town. Um, lots of incense burning, crystals, pyramids. That sort of thing was fine. But you couldn't actually believe in God. You certainly couldn't believe that Jesus was God. No, none of that. Um, and so I ended up becoming really a, a very firm atheist by the time I was you know, in my early 20s. I think one thing you say that is so interesting is the idea that there's no real neutral way to to, to raise children. I mean, this is this kind of is maybe the 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 mantra or you know very popular in the zeitgeist this idea that well we're going to raise the, our children to have kind of neutral values on religion and they can figure it out for themselves when they're of age. This of course goes against the philosophical kind of counterpoint that a lot of atheists have. Well, you're only Christian because you were raised that way. There's those two things held there, but as you say. No, and I find that very fascinating. No religion uh, is, I mean, it's a kind of religion in a sense, right? <laughs> yeah, it's not neutral because I mean, fundamentally this is one of the basic problems of, of evangelization. It's that religion makes claims about the way that the universe works. And those claims are either true or false, um, but they are. They're claims about the way their reality works. So is atheism. Um, atheism makes a claim about the way their reality works. Uh, either it's true or it's false or partly true in some ways, partly false in other ways. But it's not a matter of opinion. I mean, I, it's like raising your kids to have, you know, make up their own minds about gravity. Well, kids, you know, some people believe that if you jump off the roof, you'll fall and hurt yourselves. But, you know, we want you to make up your minds for yourself. <laughs> would, any, would any self-respecting parent do that? No, they would say, well, no. Yeah, there are some people who think it's okay to jump off the roof, but they're wrong. You shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't do it, not just because it's not the thing that we do. It's because you'll break your neck, right? And I think a huge part of the problem, at least in America and the West, I think, generally, is that even people who would identify themselves as believing Christians at some level, they think it's a personal preference. They think, well, I believe that Jesus is the Savior, but who am I to impose that on you? Well, who am I to impose gravity on you, you know? So I think that really has to shape our interactions because you still don't want to be a jerk about it. I mean, I don't go around, like, shoving people off roofs and saying, see, now you know that gravity works. Yeah, that would not be good. And that, unfortunately, is what certain types of evangelization are like. It's the shoving people off of the roof and saying, well, doesn't it just suck to have a broken leg? Yeah, no, you don't, you don't evangelize that way. Um, but you got to work from the assumption of it's really true. <laughs> and it'll help you if you know that. <laughs> I am laughing really hard over here. I'm hitting the mute button because I can't just overshadow you by laughing the whole time. But to me... The, the, the gravity example is fantastic, and what a different, I mean, that's a fundamental perspective shift in how you do evangelization uh, for your children, for those people you meet in the streets, people who are, I don't know, in your analogy, hanging out on rooftops, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, very, it's, it's a fundamental shift in, in, in how you approach that. If you, okay, yes, gravity is real. Okay, yes, God is real. We, we must treat those things, if we believe them, to be true in, in the same way, right? 
or we should. Uh, I think that gets to a fundamental key factor for effective evangelization because we have to actually believe in what we're sharing and really believe it all the way down. Um, I mean, it's sort of like if you don't really believe that you're going to get injured if you fall off of the roof, you're, you're going to not be terribly convincing when you say to folks, yeah, this dance party on the top of the 16th floor, maybe we should have railings. Maybe we should do this indoors. Maybe we shouldn't get drunk while we do it. <laughs> you know, if, if you're really convinced that that you're going to break your neck if you fall off the, off the roof, you're going to have a lot more passion and you're going to be motivated to have cogent arguments for why this is a bad idea. But if you sort of were like, well, you know, I've never actually seen anyone fall off a roof and maybe it wouldn't be that hard. And, and I think we have a lot of that with, with a lot of Christians who, who are, they are believers, but they haven't really developed their faith. It's a question of discipleship. You know, we say God exists do we live our lives to reflect that? And that, I mean, that's a huge challenge of the gospel. If the gospel doesn't terrify us a little bit, are we even paying attention? You know, really, honestly, are we having every aspect of our lives, our work, our home life, our interior life, our actions, are all of these shaped by the sure and certain knowledge that, you know, God exists Jesus is the Lord, and I've committed myself to him. Well, you know, a lot of people operate with a certain reservation. It's like, yeah, but. Well, Jesus is Lord, but. Or, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but not in politics, not in, you know, my sexual life, not in my business life. I compartmentalize. And when you have that, effectively you're saying, yeah, gravity exists, you know, if you're a construction worker on a crane. But for me, going about my ordinary business, yeah, gravity, not really a thing. So we really, I think, as as Christians need to start with ourselves and say, do we really believe and challenge ourselves to to make that step and say, okay, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And now help me live it. And if it doesn't hurt a little bit, well, <laughs> we're not doing it right. <laughs> okay, so you got through through school as an atheist, but I know from your fantastic books, I must say, that you you had your imagination kind of evangelized as as a kid, though, uh, prior to that. Can you talk a bit about maybe what set you up for being open to kind of hearing about the Christian faith and Christ a bit later on in life? what kind of laid the foundation for that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's such an important question because there's there are really two parallel tracks going on in my life because in my rational life, my intellect was saying, well, God doesn't exist. My parents don't teach me about it. It's just a thing people do, whatever. But I was reading ever since I was a little girl, you know, I love to read. Um, and I was reading all sorts of things, lots of fantasy, a lot of fairy tales and folklore, um, things that stimulated my imagination to, to be able to think symbolically and to get meaning from stories. And some of the books that most shaped my imagination were, first of all, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia um, and J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and I don't have any recollection of when I read these for the first time. They're they're kind of in my memory as always having been read. Now, it's really important to note that I did not get the Christian content of these books when I read them. I mean, honestly, 
Christian readers, Christian listeners to your podcast may find this surprising, but I might have been the only child on the planet who did not figure out that Aslan is Jesus. <laughs> no idea. At the end of the Dawn Treader, when the children meet Aslan and he turns into a lamb and they have breakfast of fish, I remember I had never been to church, never been to Sunday school, never read the Bible, never read Bible stories. I'm like, wow, that was weird. Well, it's Narnia. Okay, I guess Aslan can do that, right? <laughs> Much later did I cotton on to this. Um, and I went through a phase of being quite angry with C.S. Lewis for, for trying to evangelize me. And then I became very condescending and said, well, it's okay if he believes that. Um, and then, you know, later on I realized, oh, good heavens, this is actually true. But to get back to your to your point, um, what that did is it gave me a sense at a very deep level, imaginatively, that there was a level of meaning to reality that was somehow deeper, richer, more beautiful than what I was sort of seeing tangibly, what I was see, seeing with my intellect. Um, and it was just a little irritant, as it were. Um, I didn't have anything to connect it to. And it's funny because many, many, many years later, reading C.S. Lewis's biography, his memoir, Surprised by Joy, um, and hearing him you're seeing him describe himself at a certain point as being divided with two hemispheres, one that was bleak and dark. Um, you know, everything he believed to be true was bleak and dark. Everything that he found beautiful, and meaningful, he thought was, you know, imaginary. I'm like, yeah, okay, that, that was me in my 20s, right? So I had this sense of meaning. I had this sense that there was beauty, that that I had engaged very early on. Um, and then when I went to college, I, I was English major uh, as undergraduate, did my first master's and my PhD all in English literature. So I was steeping myself in these classics of, of literature. And I, again, I had the great benefit of, of, of studying English with professors who were still teaching the classics. And so I was reading the great poets of the Western tradition. And so many of them, most of them are Christian you know, John Donne, George Herbert, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Man, Gerard Manley Hopkins just about set my head on fire. I'm like, wow, I do not understand his poetry, but it's amazing. Uh, and so this, again, it gave me these images, this resonance about faith now. And at this point, I could, I could tell, okay, these guys are writing about Christianity. And there's something really deeply beautiful and meaningful about it. And yet, intellectually, I was saying, yeah, but that's not true. Um, and so there was this dichotomy. But the very fact of my engagement with this literature meant that I could never quite distance myself from that world. And then, you know, and God just works in mysterious ways. I did my PhD dissertation on fantasy literature, which centered on J.R.R. Tolkien. It's kind of the pivot point. And, of course, you know, devout Catholic, The Lord of the Rings is a, you know, fundamentally Catholic work, as Tolkien himself said, although not overtly. Um, and the, But the key part of my dissertation was Tolkien's essay on fairy stories, which I encountered probably when I was about 15, which means that I've been grappling with this one essay for more than 30 years. It's so rich. And in that essay on fairy stories, he's talking about what fantasy is and how it works. But he ends... With the Evangelium, he ends with actually quite a powerful proclamation of the gospel. He says the reason that we love fairy stories, that we love the happy ending, is that they are an echo of the happy ending of the cosmic story of Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection, which he says really happened in history. 
It's like one paragraph in this essay, but it's kind of all the gospel right there. Wham! And I tell you, that just hit me, cut me to the heart. Didn't believe it. Didn't believe it when I read it. But it moved me deeply. And because I loved Tolkien, and I found the world that he had created to be so beautiful, so meaningful, so rich, it had this texture of reality that really, you know, my ordinary life kind of didn't have as an atheist, very flat and kind of shallow, that it stuck with me. Um, and so eventually that led, again, years later, this is a slow, a slow process. I was had, had my PhD, had my first university teaching job, um, and I was teaching English and returning to these great poets and again being moved by them. And finally I said to myself, you know, I don't believe what these people believe. I'm not a Christian. I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not going to be a Christian. Don't throw me in the briar patch, Br'er Rabbit. I'm not going to be a Christian. But finally, this was the key but, but they're such good writers and such strong thinkers. They make this beautiful literature this is my great concession. They can't be total idiots. <laughs> so I said, well, maybe, just maybe, this thing that they believe is a little bit more interesting than what I think Christianity is about. Maybe it's not quite so stupid. I still don't believe it, don't want to believe it, but maybe Tolkien and Lewis and Hopkins and Dunn are are actually onto something. And that led me to ask the questions. Well, what do Christians believe? And and here's the key. Be ready to hear the answers and not just dismiss them. And then, of course, I, I discovered, oh, my word. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> true. Oh, no, what have I gotten myself into? And then, long story short, end up becoming a Christian. Uh, you can see that the imagination working on that really made it possible for me to engage with these ideas. And this is something that I've really taken forward into my work as an apologist, um, both in my book, Apologetics and the Christian Imagination, and in my work now for Word on Fire. It wasn't that when I was in my 20s and 30s that I didn't see Christians and, and encounter Christian lingo. I, I recall when I was a graduate student, you know, evangelists trying to, you know, convince us that we need to become Christians. Water off a duck's back. Um, really the issue was that the concepts were not meaningful. Like, yeah, whatever. Um, I don't care. Um, so that question of meaning, you know, investing words with meaning, because fundamentally people don't care if something's true unless they find it to be meaningful. They've got to be interested in it first. Only if you're interested do you ask the question, hmm, could this possibly be true? And you can shout facts to people. You can tell them things, but unless they're interested and unless they find the words that we use to be meaningful, it's pretty much worse than useless. So I think a lot of what we need to do as Christians, as evangelists, is to create meaning. And it, and it really is hard work. We've got to go back. We've got to really think about the words that we use and how we use them. And do we understand what they mean? And that's hard work. But Nobody ever said evangelization was a walk in the park, right? It just happens to be hard in this particular way for our particular cultural moment. I, I think it's it's so interesting, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think it's so interesting that you, you know, your imagination was 
was opened up by some of these very Christian authors um, from, as you say, as far back as you can remember, you, you gave them a, a certain weight, a certain authority to speak into your life, the, the ideas they had. And then when you come to realize that all these, these fantastic writers and poets are have a certain worldview, well, then that worldview becomes something that you perhaps are okay lending a bit more credence to because you've been kind of opened up to that idea. I think for myself, I, I became a Christian, um, evangelical Christian, kind of in the middle of high school. And it was through thinking about, you know, is the world bigger than just me and encountering these new ideas as I was coming of age. You know, I was very, very self-centered and remained so. But for a small period, I was, I was open to other ideas. And where I went was to my one of my best friends who... He had was raised Christian, where I was not. He had a very evangelical Christian family. And we never, ever talked about Christianity or Christ. He never actually evangelized me from for the, for the 15 years I knew him, since almost birth. Uh, we were neighbors. But his house had this peace about it. When, when we would go over there and play as kids or hang out there as teens, there was this overriding sense of peace when I was in his house. So when I decided to look into... The, the bigger world out there of religions and is there a God and is there a meaning to life? I went and I asked him because he was somebody who I allowed into my world, who we'd been friends with. And that sense of peace that, that prevailed in his house kind of worked on me that when it was time to ask those questions, it was him that I went to to ask. You know, there's, there's something powerful in that who we let in to our lives, to, to speak into our lives, our imaginations. You know, when the time comes, when these questions are, are asked, it's those, it's those people have a greater weight. And so then, of course, as you say, our challenge is how do we be that for others in our evangelization, right? Exactly. And it's, it's, this is such a great example that, that you brought up because it, it's got both parts. Because witness, personal witness, is hugely important. Um, you know, we need to be be the people that people look at and say, I want my life to be more like him or more like her. Uh, and that's important. But we've also got to be able to give the reason for the hope that is within us, you know, as, as St. Peter tells us to do. So it's not enough to have the life, but then not be able to articulate what it is that makes it different. But conversely, it's also not enough to be able to rattle off all the arguments, but have a life that shows no fruits. It's both. It's both and. And I, I think, too, about those 15 years, you know, of, of, of being drawn to this and then finally asking the question. When you asked the question, I imagine you were ready to hear the answer. You were ready to, to engage with it. And, of course, you can, you can encourage people. You can invite. Um, but I think, I think we need to cultivate a, a sort of greater sense of patience in our evangelization because people – aren't going to listen to us if they think they're being hectored, if they think they're being talked at. And I have so much sympathy for Christians who have a sense of urgency and they want to just get to the point, you know, come on, you know, tell them the gospel. And I know, for instance, that there are some Catholics who are a little impatient with the way that Word on Fire focuses on evangelization, you know, through culture, through the media. And one thing I would say, hey, you know, there's room for all sorts of evangelization. We need all kinds. Nobody can do everything. So we pick we pick the thing that we do. I do literature, right? Um, but I think the thing that's really important to realize is that we live in a cultural moment when just telling people 
doesn't work. Now, it can be very gratifying for the ego of the person doing the telling. Well, I told them about the church. Well, I told them about Jesus. I told them about the sacraments. I told them that they're living in sin. And those are all true things that they were telling them. But did it do any good? Did it move them any closer to accepting that as the truth? And having, especially having been in that place, having been an atheist, having been a Protestant, now a Catholic, you know what? 99 times out of 100, it does no good. And half the time, it does harm. Because then you get jaded and you put up a defensive wall. So it's not neutral. So then the next time someone says, hey, you know, have you ever thought about Jesus? Yeah, I have. I don't want to know. No, no, no. No more of that. No, no. Thank you. So that previous encounter being, you know, kind of hectored at actually pushes them farther away rather than bringing them closer. But, you know, the whole point of using culture as a means to talk about themes of faith. Okay, sure. You know. Does someone immediately become a Catholic upon hearing a discussion about spiritual themes in Bob Dylan or Gerard Manley Hopkins or J.R.R. Tolkien? Yeah, probably not. Okay. But do they take a step closer to saying, hmm, this faith thing is meaningful. Maybe I should take it seriously. Yeah. And then the next step, hmm, that idea kind of makes sense. Maybe I should find out some more. And then maybe they take the step from, the cultural engagement, the music, the films, the literature. And then they start asking a question about the theology, about the doctrine, about the teaching of the church. And then they can start considering that. You know, people aren't light switches. It's not just on or off. And I think having a sense of the process really helps us to evangelize. And we need people at all stages. We need the people who can do the cultural work, and that's where I am. We need the people who can do the doctrinal teaching, doing it respectfully and gently and, you know, drawing people from where they are and leading them forward. We need, we need all of these. Um, but it's, I think our particular cultural moment is one in which we have to pay extra attention to the pre-evangelization. Otherwise, people, frankly, just aren't listening when they hear the actual evangelization and we get nowhere. <laughs> That's so important to underscore. I, I had the distinct pleasure and privilege uh, and a blessing of doing this program, and I encounter people in all all stages of this journey. It's, it's really fascinating. Somebody who's literally would Google Catholic Church and find this this show, or who would be midway in the journey and oh, I heard this episode on so and so from there, and like that, you know, that helped me to work through this little next bit here. Or somebody who's hey, I just came to the church and this is fantastic. It, it's it's a real blessing. To do this, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's and that pre-evangelization is, you know, this. You're the you're the professor in this situation, not teaching you anything. But it is so important. It's so it's so fundamental because we encounter people. I had a John DeRosa on this show a while back, who's just kind of written a book that speaks to some of these atheist uh, and agnostic memes that you see out there on the internet, and and they're memes, right? So they're they're these short little pithy kind of things. But as we discuss this and as you kind of work down on this, you realize that, that our culture is such that those memes are often what people are holding as, as you know, in quote unquote, the gospel truth. Because our culture is so bereft of this, of, of evangelization, it's these really simple, silly things that are very easy for an, a, a serious philosopher or theologian or apologist to, to dismantle, as it were. But our culture 
is missing that pre-evangelization to even think about that in any kind of critical way. So, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true and the, the work is, is fundamental, right? It is. And, you know, thinking about something like memes, um, you know, my, my work is a, you know, imaginative and cultural apologist and, and fundamentally as a teacher of apologists, I'm, I, I, I found that my vocation is sort of the teaching the teachers um, kind of thing. But in my work with that, I have found that teaching people to read the culture is just a critical piece. That's something that I did and my colleagues continue to do in the MA in apologetics at, at Houston Baptist, which is, by the way, an ecumenical program. <laughs> so I was a Catholic teaching at a Baptist university, but it's a it's an ecumenical program. Um, but being able to um, read the culture means understanding what are the underlying assumptions that people are bringing to the table. And their assumptions. They, people can't articulate them. Um, if they could, they would be assumptions and they would be easier to deal with. It's much easier to deal with the assumption, the, the, the questions that people are able to articulate. But I mean, I've been a teacher for, you know, 20 odd years. You learn, you learn that when the student asks the question, there's the question that they ask, but often there's the question that they, that they really have. And then they think you, you read their mind when you say, ah, I wonder if actually what you're asking is, wow, Dr. Orby, how did you know? Mm, well, <laughs> experience. So I think we need as, you know, as, as evangelists to learn how to read the underlying culture and understand where people are coming from. And that will allow us to answer the real questions, not just the superficial ones. So I'll give you one example that I that I, I think is particularly important, maybe the most important thing about our modern culture, which is the concept of autonomy, personal autonomy. This idea that I am the captain of my ship, I make the decisions, I make choices, and that this is the primary value. That under, that assumption is so baked into our culture, that people don't even know that you can question it. And it plays out in all sorts of ways. So for instance, take pro-life issues. You know, one of the reasons that a lot of pro-life efforts are not bearing fruit in certain ways is they're coming up hard against this assumption. You know, you can say, rightly, you know, well, unborn babies are human beings. Um, and and at this point, people will often People will often now say, yes, I agree. The unborn child is a child. The unborn child is a person. But, here's the thing, but the mother has the right to choose. And what that means is that the mother's autonomy trumps all other issues. And you will even get people actually being quite honest about it, saying, yeah, you know, babies are human being, a person, but I get to pick. I'm the one in charge and I, I call the shots. And that is, you can't deal with that with saying, but fetal pain, but personhood, but heartbeat. All those are true. And the person will say, yeah, I concede, I concede, I concede. But I'm the one who's in charge. You've got to address that and say, well, what if, what if your life is not about you? <laughs> That's the underlying assumption. And you get that. It's so deep-seated that we might be able to see it in other people, like, for instance, in pro-abortion issues, and say, oh, that's terrible. But I think we need to look inward and say, well, you know, what about me? Am I willing to accept authority, or am I the, the arbiter? And I'm going to go into a slightly touchy subject here, um, thinking about 
um, various dioceses and the bishops deciding whether to suspend public masses. And the bishop is the, is the authority, is the father in the diocese. It's his job to make these decisions. Now, if I myself say, well, I don't think that the pandemic is bad enough to do that, or I think that religious freedom trumps, you know, being able to, um, you know, the public health issue. Well, great, you think that. But this, again, is idolizing autonomy. It's saying, I am the one who gets to make the decision, not my, you know, lawful ecclesiastical authority. And about something that's a prudential issue, it's not a moral issue. It isn't. It's, okay, the bishop has to decide, how do I keep my people safe? If I don't like it, my job is to say, well, you know what? I'm going to offer it up and I'm going to accept it. But again, the fact that this was so difficult for so many people, that even if they got to that stage of saying I accepted, that they had to go through so much agony to get there, that's because this idea of autonomy as the ultimate value has seeped its way into everybody. So we don't really accept authority. We kind of do, but it's always authority but. Um, and it comes out in surprising ways, in even the most trivial way of like, well, it, it, this will interrupt my life a little bit. Oh, I want to be the one to decide. So I think that's that's an example of looking at um, reading the culture and seeing what are the underlying assumptions. And also, I think we really always have to look both outward and inward, because if we're only looking out and saying, oh, those atheists, those non-Catholics, those non-Christians, look at what they are mistaken about. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're in the same culture. How am I mistaken? Where do I need to stretch? And then maybe I'll be able to speak with, with more conviction, with more um authority when I when I share with them. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so we last left you, uh, an, an atheist academic, but with your imagination open to these things, kind of looking at these authors that you love, and I do I, I do love, I was looking for your book on my shelf back here and I can't find it, but you just, you quote so many of these poems from, you know, Jared Manley Hopkins and these different things that stimulate your imagination throughout your, your works, your books, uh, and I love those examples of these things that opened up your imagination. I, I appreciate being exposed to those. Uh, so what happened next? Well, it, actually, it, it, at that stage, it was a very intellectual process. Um, I ended up, uh, by by God's providence, it turned out I was a, a sport fencer for many years um, at a fairly high-level club. Um, and it turns out my fencing coach was a Christian, um, evangelical Christian, um, and was able to talk with me and to you know lend me books and suggest reading and things like that, um, which so I had a very intense stretch about three months where I looked into these things, you know, does God exist? Did the resurrection happen? Um, and because I was willing to consider the arguments, I was able to recognize that the arguments were convincing. Um, and I didn't particularly like where it was going. Cause I'm like, okay, this is, this is going to mess with my life. This is going to disrupt my nice, tidy arrangement of things and my philosophy. But, you know, and here I, I, I think that, being an academic in that sense helped me because I had always had a conviction that, you know, you've, you've got to follow the evidence where it leads, whether it's looking up a citation or figuring out, you know, what an author's really arguing, you got to go where the, where the truth is, um, whether you like it or not, whether or not the text supports your argument. Oh, the author, my source doesn't actually say that thing that would have been so convenient for my essay if he had said it. Well, I guess I got to find a different source. 
And that habit of mind um, helped me because I was able to see, oh, these arguments for the existence of God, they make, they're, they're much more convincing than my atheist attempts to explain the universe. And I accepted those. And I moved on from there. And then I realized that N.T. Wright's massive book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, was fantastically helpful because he basically, in what, 700 pages, makes the case that the resurrection actually happened. And by the time I got to, you know, page 701 or what have you, I, I said, yeah, it did. You know, I think I should do something about that. <laughs> um, and so I realized that I had to become a Christian. And of course, at, at that, in that context, what that meant was, I said the, you know, the characteristic evangelical, you know, sinner's prayer. And, and then I was like, yeah, I feel completely the same as I did yesterday. Okay. Massive letdown. Yeah. Okay. That was underwhelming. And so I attempted then to carry on like, okay, I'm a Christian now and I should go to church and found a church. Ended up actually finding a um, Episcopal, high church, Episcopal church was where I ended up going and, you know, kind of learning about these things. But I, I have to say, you know, I had a very intense, very kind of intense um, period of intellectual engagement, which did involve a lot of emotional oomph because I had to recognize I'm not the captain of my ship. That was the basic thing. I, I need to accept that there is authority. Jesus is this authority and I've got to accept that, whatever that might mean. And that was difficult. But then when I became a Christian, um, the emotional experience was fundamentally let down, frankly. Like, yeah, okay, I'm still the same person with the same flaws that I was last week. Well, okay, I guess this business of being Christian is kind of like in for the long haul. And I didn't have any particular emotional feelings about God. And I, I like to stress this because I think a lot of people that, that I've talked to um, and corresponded with, a lot of people are held back from taking the step of faith because they, they don't feel the right, what they think are the right feelings. I don't love Jesus. I don't feel this. I don't, I don't feel that I have faith, but faith isn't, faith is not about emotions. Faith is an act of trust to say, okay, this is true. I'm going to, I'm going to move forward on the basis of this truth. So I did not love Jesus when I became a Christian, nor for quite a long stretch afterwards. This shocks some Christians, apparently. Um, I've, I, I'm not quite sure why, but like, how do you love someone that you don't know? You know, I had never met Jesus. I didn't know him. How on earth was I supposed to have any sort of feelings about him? Like, okay, I know who he is now. He's definitely in charge, but like, okay. <laughs> so then learning what does it mean to love and, and understanding that love isn't, love is willing the good of the other. Love is obedience. Love is not like, oh, I have warm butterflies in my heart when I think of Jesus. I'm not, I'm not a sappy kind of person. So <laughs> this sort of hearts and flowers sorts of things was never my, was never my bag. Um, so that, that was, I think, one of the biggest lessons really of my first few years as a, as a Protestant Christian was, yeah, this is just, you just kind of got to do it. It's not, it's not about the emotions. It's not about the, the feelings. Um, and I'm very grateful that I was able to, to learn that because I mean, C.S. Lewis has a great thing on this in the screw tape letters that you've, if God often gives people kind of an emotional, spiritual high when they're first, 
first encountering the divine. It's a it's a spiritual way of encouragement. He's helping kind of fill the sails and move you forward. But you you need to learn how to act in trust. You need to learn how to act in obedience. And only then does your faith actually grow. It's like you take the training wheels off of the bike and you fall over, right? You scrape your knees. But you need to learn that. And that's something that I'm that I learned actually when I was when I was a Protestant. Um, and then that I think that also helped me to be prepared when I became a Catholic. Because again, you know, becoming a Catholic was absolutely the best thing I've ever done. Absolutely. Best thing I have ever done in my life. Um, probably the best thing I ever will do in my life. Um, and it has opened up, you know, a whole, you know, the fullness of the faith, the fullness of reality, things like, you know, in full color, not like, you know, black and white. But again, we have to walk in it. We have to grow. It's, I mean, and, and now as a Catholic, there's actually a theology for this. There's an understanding of this is how it works. The church knows this is how it works. The process of of, sacra- of the sacramental life, of confession, of, you know, you, you just repeat the cycle. You, you, you screw up, you go to confession, you grow in grace, you, you know, it's, you keep doing it. And with God's help, bit by bit, you, you grow in grace, but it's, it's slow. And, you know, and, and the Catholic church is full of fallen, broken, screwed up people doing stupid things and arguing and, you know, and generally just being human. So yeah, it's the church that Jesus founded and it is the one true church and it has the fullness of the faith and it has the sacraments. Um, and, and it's not, you know, the king, the, the kingdom hasn't come yet. And I think the fact that I had that process of kind of letdown and growth as a Protestant meant that I didn't have that feeling of letdown when I became a Catholic because I knew, I'm like, right, this is going to be a process and, you know, I'm going to go forward in it. And that has been, that has been the case. It's really interesting. I, I became Catholic, of course, after about, so I don't know, 15 years or so as an evangelical. And uh, I remember it's, it broke my heart at the time, but after I became Catholic, I had a period of time where I could go to daily mass. My work schedule afforded me, and uh, you know that I woke up very early in the morning. I went to the, actually went to the gym and then to daily mass and then to work. I was very ambitious. <laughs> and uh, I remember after mass one morning, the, uh, the priest who had helped me join the church, it was the same priest there still, took me aside and said, oh, I'm so glad that you're still here, you know, every coming to our church because so many of those that go through the RCA process, this long process that the church has to initiate new, you know, Catholic converts or new or new adult Catholics, he said so many that go through that program, you know, come and then never come back again. They just they're gone. And and he was okay with that. <laughs> and he left and walked away and I kinda of stood there and thought, that that's not the right mindset. We can't be okay with people who go through this this process. Um, and it's the same in evangelical churches that I was a part of as well. There, there's the drive. They often don't have this nearly year-long process to become evangelical, as you did and I did. You say a prayer and kind of then begin that life and kind of go, what's next? And in some places, there are resources to help you with what's next. But in so many cases, even in, in that part of the, the Christian sphere, it's just kind of, well, hopefully you get through this and and grow, but there's almost an acceptance that, well, not everybody will because some convert and then kind of fall away. But we need to, we need to, as you're saying, and I think it's such a fundamental point that you've made that in the Catholic, and this is what we both, and I want to dig in more to your story, of course, uh, uh, what made you make that leap. But there is 
there is that sacramental life which lays a framework down for how to keep this thing moving and growing and, and, and going. But we have to emphasize that when people become Catholic, that this is now the life you've entered. And yes, you're going to have lows and highs, but here's how you keep moving forward, right? Yeah, and I appreciate it, brother. Um, I completely agree with everything you said about that, frankly, being a tragedy, because I see this in our CAA programs, and I see it in confirmation preparation. Um, and I, I help I help out with confirmation classes a little bit in my um, in my parish. Um, I, I come in to give a lecture at one point in the cycle, um, and just talking with you know the RCA director and the confirmation people. I know them, and just hearing you know their experiences, and also I have I have heard priests, I've heard pastors refer to confirmation as the sacrament of leaving. And they're kind of half joking, but they're only half joking because they have an expectation that the kids are, are, are okay, I finally I did the thing to please mom and dad, and now I'm out of here. And that breaks my heart. And it, again, it comes down to what are the underlying assumptions? If we're okay with that, then it means that we don't really understand what it is we're inviting them into. Because if we're inviting them into the fullness of the faith, it's not okay for them to walk away and something has gone wrong with the process if it's so easy. Now, there's always going to be people who do walk away because it's human nature and we pray they'll come back. But when, when it's a majority or when it's a, even a plurality, then I think we need to say something, something needs to be changed about the process in which we're instructing people. I mean, it's like as a professor – um, you know, if I give a test to my students or I give them an essay and I find that three quarters of them bombed it, the, and unfortunately there are some professors who will say, oh, my students are idiots. I'm doing everything perfectly and they won't do any of the work. Well, that's not the right response, frankly. It might be true that the class blew it off. It could, that could be the case. But especially if it keeps happening, I as a teacher have to say, Am I teaching them what they need to know to do what I'm asking them to do? And I need to say, what do I need to do to help them to get to where they need to be? I mean, that's part of what being a teacher means. So I think that whole culture of, of preparation needs, needs some serious reconsideration. Um, and part of it is, frankly, the idea of RCIA, that's just one way of doing it. Because it's interesting, you went through a, a process, um, you assumed that I had, I didn't, um, as it happens. Um, I did a lot of reading and studying, thinking and talking with Catholic friends, and came to the decision of I'm going to become Catholic, um, and then it was, this was in Houston, I went actually to the Cathedral of Our Lady of Walsingham, um, now the cathedral wasn't the cathedral yet, which is the primary church in the U, in the U.S. for the ordinaria, the person, the personal ordinary of the chair of St. Peter, which is, for your listeners who have no idea what that is, the ordinariate is the provision for people who were Protestants, but in the Anglican or Episcopal tradition. So they have a lot of shared doctrine with Catholics, so and a lot of shared tradition. And so the ordinariate takes all of that tradition, makes it Catholic, gets that rid of the stuff that is not true, and provides a, a, a way in and, and a liturgical rite that draws on that beautiful tradition. Anyway, that to me was a natural place for me to inquire because I had been at a very high Anglican church as a, as a Protestant. And so I met with the rector 
and um, said, I want to become a Catholic. And I didn't even know what RCA was. Um, they have a program there. And he talked with me and asked me questions. And I came back another time. We had another conversation. He asked me questions. Um, and he and because he knew where I was coming from, because this is the ordinary, this is, we had a shared context, he knew what he needed to find out to know whether I really was ready to become a Catholic. And then he said, great, okay, well, um, how about if we receive you, you know, next month? And I was received the next month. And there wasn't this long process. And for me, that was that was appropriate. Um, not It's not the case for everybody. Some people need a longer process. But I think that level of discernment is something we need to bring back in. Um, because people are individuals. And people come to the faith at different stages. And some people, frankly, just need to have a couple meetings of instruction. And this is how it used to be, you know, before RCA was invented, you would, you would go into instruction with a local priest for however long was necessary. And if it was a long time, it was a long time. And if it was short, it was short. And then you're received in. And I think that bringing back that sort of discernment into the process would probably help. Um, I'm not saying that we need to cut short. Some people probably need to have it longer. But I think we need to have more discernment. And we, one thing, this is a real pet peeve, we, we cannot say to people, oh, you want to become a Catholic? Sorry, RCA started last month. Come back next year. No, wrong answer. That is the wrong answer. Whatever the answer might be, that is not the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think we need to be thinking more about the church as this, you know, this living community, this way of living we're inviting people into it, and we, we need to be more, I think, relational and organic in how, how we do that. So I've gone on a bit too long about that, but it's something <laughs> I feel very strong about. As an educator, we need to think about how do we do the educating. Well, it's really funny because I had essentially read my way into the church. I read just a, a stack of books, and I'd actually done about two years' worth of RCIA on YouTube from a parish, uh, Our Lady of Good Counsel in, in uh, Plymouth, Michigan, uh, Father John Ricardo, who I met and thanked later on at a, at a conference where he was speaking uh, years later. I said, thank you. I did RCA at your parish. He said, what do you mean? You're from Canada. And I said, well, here's how it worked. So I'd done like, you know, two years worth of RCAA, essentially, watching their videos they put online. I'd read a pile of books and went to the closest Catholic church. I had no idea. I thought they were, they're all the same as what I thought. Everyone is, is equal. Knocked on the door and said, I want to become Catholic. And it was like you say, well, our program started... Or, or starts, you know, you know, but and you're kind of a little bit late to begin. But here, you can you can do it this way, and but there was no option at the time for. Well, you've read all these things, you've done two years worth of this. There was no, it was just here. Join the program; it's launched. Or I didn't experience this, thankfully. But you're absolutely right. Oh, sorry, it's already begun. Come back next year to become Catholic. <laughs> I mean, completely the wrong answer. I do want to know. Then, so what moved? you because this is i think really critical and if i'm not mistaken i think you ended up revising your original book that you'd written about your conversion story you've joined a long line i think of other uh christian converts who've done the kind of the same thing i'm thinking of people like thomas howard who wrote a conversion story and then had to kind of go back and and, and rewrite it in a sense because your conversion did not end where you thought it ended originally. So, exactly. what, you know, what moved you from this high church, Episcopalian, Protestant tradition into the Catholic church? What, what, what went on there? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, 
that's it's a great question. Um, because I, I had, in a sense, everything. I had life was good as, as a high church Episcopalian. Nice liturgy, nice music. And you got to believe whatever you wanted, frankly. Um, you know, and if you didn't like a certain thing, you, you didn't have to do it. Uh, and, you know, like the, the Anglican view of going to confession. Because, again, it was a very high church parish, so there was confession available. And I partook of it. But it was, the, the official line was, <clears throat> all can... Some should, none must. And if you think about it, that's deeply incoherent. Because if sin is sin, then it's a problem for everybody. And if confession actually absolves you of sin, everybody should do it. But that that kind of, that was very much the, the ethos, which made it easy to get along in certain ways. But one of the things that I began to realize was that this this squishiness um, was really problematic when it came to sort of more, you know, ethical issues where there ought to be a clear answer, like abortion, for instance. You know, as, as I, when I was an atheist, I was very pro-abortion because I didn't think human beings had souls. So it's like, okay, what's the big deal? That's that is fundamentally a, a reasonable position. It's deeply wrong, but based on what I believed about reality, it was reasonable. As soon as I, 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 it was almost a light switch moment. As soon as I realized people have souls, we shouldn't kill them. Boom, done. Abortion's wrong. We shouldn't do it. It's it, that easy, right? But the Episcopal Church was like, well, we don't talk about that. Um, I'm like, okay, that's, okay, that's weird. Um, contraception. Well, is it, is it actually wrong or, or not? Like, Wow, what's the deal with that? But we'll kind of sweep under the rug, you know, and like, okay, fine. We'll just sort of, we'll waffle on that. But what eventually ended up um, being the critical factor was, was the, the underlying assumption to all these things, which is who gets to decide? What's the authority? Um, and I did a second master's degree in apologetics, actually at a Protestant university, um, Biola. And there I had evangelical Protestant teachers um, and I was going to a Episcopal Anglican church, so the theology there was a little bit different. And I'm, I'm, I have a very thorough and orderly mind, so I thought to myself, well, I'm hearing different things on certain theological points from these evangelicals and from my pastors at my church, and then there are these Catholics and these Orthodox, and they have different views. Hey, let's find out what they all think. So as I went to this program, every time we hit some theological issue i'm like okay what do the evangelicals think what are the you know what do the advocates think what do the orthodox think what do the catholics think and what do you know time and again i found myself thinking yeah the catholics make the most sense yeah that makes sense okay that's coherent um and so that was that was part of what was niggling at me and kind of moving me inching me closer but fundamentally what i finally was deeply troubled by was that we had no way to agree because um, we all agreed, for instance, that scripture was true and authoritative, infallible, whatever you want to call it. But we were getting very different things out of scripture. So to give just one very basic example, baptism. Does baptism actually affect an ontological change in your status? Or is it a symbol, only a symbol of your, you know, reception into a Christian community? Either it does something to you changes your state of original sin to one of innocence, or it doesn't. This is one thing or the other. 
Um, but there were all sorts of different views. You know, the evangelicals pretty much saying it's a symbol. It doesn't actually do anything. The Anglicans kind of waffling. Um, the, you know, saying, yeah, it's important, but not necessarily being able to articulate why. Um, and the Catholics saying, yes, it, you know, it has an effects ontological change. It frees you from original sin. Boom. It's okay. Well, who's right? Um, and of course the default approach was, well, look at what the scriptures say and decide for yourself. Like, yeah, but I, I could see that there were people who were very intelligent, very devout, very sincere Christians who had fruits in their lives of sincere faith, who were reading the scriptures and coming up with opposite answers. So it wasn't a question of intellect. It wasn't a question of, you know, sincerity. It was like, well, how do we know? And then, you know, some of my, my classmates in the program would say, okay, well, you got to go, you know, go back to the original languages. Look at, you know, look at what the Greek says. And finally, in a way, that might have been the last straw. Because I thought to myself, you know, if the gospel is true, it's got to be true for everybody, not just people who have the intellect and leisure and, you know, finances to study the original languages. If you have to read the original Greek to figure out what's true, that leaves out a lot of people that Jesus pretty clearly was speaking to. And so that question, how do we know? Is there an authority that can speak to the interpretation of Scripture? That was the question. And one of the, I think the thing that crystallized it was um, the question of the ordination of women as actually as bishops. I was in the UK. Um, I go there every year. Um, and this was a big topic at the time. They had already been ordaining women as they had already been ordaining them in the Episcopal Church, although we didn't have one in my particular parish. Uh, and now they were debating whether they were going to have women bishops. And there have never been women bishops any time in the history of the church, um, ever. So how do you argue that now the church can make women bishops and bishops are even like in a way more visibly distinctive than priests. Cause they make other, you know, they ordain other people. They, they, they're part of the apostolic succession. What's going on here. And so there are really two, two things going on. One is, so we know, we know now that this is the right thing to do, that women can be priests and bishops but somehow Jesus and his apostles didn't know that or, or, or fundamentally Jesus knew that women could be bishops, but he didn't pick any women to be his 12 apostles because why? Because he was um, influenced by the society of his time, didn't want to cause trouble. This is God we're talking about. I, I don't think that that really works. So either you, you got to say either we know better than God what is going on or yeah, well, he really meant that, but just didn't manage to communicate it to the church. So the church has been confused for 2000 years, but now we've said it right. And, and fundamentally that whole, that whole idea that now, you know, in 2006, a bunch of Christians can just say, we now know better than the church for 2000 years. What is reality how, how do you make the decision? And that was what really triggered me to, over to say, you know what? There is a church that has a coherent way to respond to this that says we have the voice of authority, was given to us by Jesus, and has been carried through the magisterium and the apostolic succession. And when the church speaks, it is true. Um, and there's no other voice anywhere 
that can say that. And fundamentally, that was that was what convinced me that I needed to become a Catholic. Because it, how can I decide? How can it be that Jesus would allow his disciples to be in utter confusion about what is baptism, what is sin, you know, what what things are moral sin and what are not. Is there such a thing as mortal sin? Do any of these things matter? Is the resurrection real? These are all things that are are debated. And, you know, for the Holy Spirit to say, I will lead you into all truth, well, pretty obviously that can't mean individual Christians because He's not. The Holy Spirit is not evidently leading individual Christians into the truth because we're ending, ending up in different places. And the truth can't be opposed to itself. So the Spirit is evidently speaking of the church. Well, what's the only church that that actually is bold enough to say we are the ones who have that truth? It's a Catholic church. And that was fundamentally you know, why I became Catholic. All the theologically, I had been inching up closer and closer and closer, agreeing with these Catholic positions on so many different ways. But I could have stayed an Anglican and believed all those things because the Anglican Church is like, sure, whatever. But the Anglican Church and no other church could answer the question, why should you believe this and not that? And that question of authority is, is fundamentally necessary. So that's the long answer for how I became a Catholic. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. And that, of course, is something that draws so many of us into the Catholic Church. I mean, in, in my own my own conversion experience, you, you, can, you can sit for a time in this idea that, well, we all have the scriptures, that's our authority. But then, well, we're all looking at it differently. And then you go for a while, well, okay, our differences aren't on major issues. They're on minor things. We also believe that Jesus is Lord. We're also following following what his words and his teaching. But like you say, as soon as you begin to kind of pick at that, I think Peter Kreeft calls this like a pebble in your shoe. As soon as you encounter one of these pebbles in your shoe, like baptism, I mean, wait a minute, this is not one of those minor issues. This is fundamental. Does baptism actually save somebody? Is it, is it necessary? As the church has always, ta- always taught, un- beyond a shadow of a doubt, the church teaches this. You look at the early church fathers, this is what was taught for a very, very long time. Or, or are we wrong on that? And that's not one of these small issues. It's fundamental. So once you begin to realize that, okay, scriptures are an authority, but, and we can disagree, but, but once you begin to realize that we're disagreeing on things that are not minor issues, they're fundamental, and if this thing is the authority, well, we're all being led into confusion. I mean, once you make that kind of realization, once that pebble works away at you long enough, you have to look somewhere for that authority. And I'm thinking, of, I had Paul McCusker on the show a while back, and he is, uh, for evangelicals, he's the guy behind Adventures in Odyssey, which a lot of evangelical kids would have grown up listening to. And he f- he went from the evangelical church into the Episcopal church, uh, Anglican first, then Episcopal. And he looked around and saw these, I think kind of like you've done, these people voting on issues or making decisions on things like women as as bishops and kind of going like, well, this can't be us voting on what we believe, there's got to be more to this authority. And I mean, that's more authoritative than just a kind of evangelical church, whereas it's me and scripture, my denomination or my church. The, the Anglican Episcopalian Church has a bit more of a structure of authority, but then it was still people just kind of voting on something, oftentimes not even appealing to scripture, which would be the authority. And then as you found, as I found this thing called the Catholic Church, it has the audacity to say, you know what, we've always said that we're, we have this God-given right to say 
what is and what isn't. It's a really fundamental difference, right? It is. And I think so. In this modern day, we have so much media um, that that difference in a way can be slightly obscured because there is a sense in which, you know, the, the way that the church understands itself has always been messy because, you know, there are all these, all the councils of the church, you know, the, the Holy Spirit didn't deliver, you know, the clear understanding of, of Jesus's divinity and the Trinity, you know, in, in a nice little package to St. Peter here, there you go. Um, the spirit obviously decides to work through the processes of history. You know, how did we articulate, um, the theology of, of Jesus's, you know, um, nature? Well, in response to the Arian heresy, um, and needing to clarify that. And boy, was that a mess, you know, talk about a low point in the church, you know, <laughs> the heresy at one point had taken over most of the known world and, and, and the Catholic church was small. So we, we see there's this process of the, the development of doctrine, as, uh, as John Henry Newman point, points out, that there's this organic unfolding um, over time as the church understands the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith is always the same, but understanding what it means and unfolding it and seeing how it applies and that has always been a messy process, and it has involved confusion and then clarification over the course of history. And I think one of the things that has been difficult for Catholics and for non-Catholics who are interested in this in our present moment is, in a way, we see too much of the process, and we we can get caught up in the process of like, okay, synods and, and well, it, like, well, they're voting on things. Are they make, how is this working? Like, well, it's all working within the authority structure. So bishops voting in a synod in the Catholic church is actually fundamentally different than bishops voting, people who call themselves bishops voting in anything else, because it's within the body of the Catholic church. I frankly think that we'd probably, the average Catholic would be better off not really worrying so much about the process and concentrating on what the church is teaching, that would probably help because again, too much concentration on the process becomes this personal autonomy issue. Well, if I were there, I would vote on this. Well, if I were there, I would do that. Like, well, you're not there. <laughs> Maybe you should just try to live with what the church is already teaching. There's sure plenty to, there's plenty to work on. Or for instance, you know, Vatican II, it's a big flashpoint right now amongst Catholics. Um, and it's really very frustrating to see see the way in which these issues are discussed, not necessarily a productive way. Let's just put it that way. Because um, Vatican II is, is, you know, not that long ago in the, way the his, in, the, in the way the church works. So if you think on a historical level, and of course I do a lot of work, you know, medieval literature, and like, this is just yesterday. Of course things are a mess. You know, there hasn't even been time for it to settle. So I, I think there's a, a sort of a historical view of like, well, you know, Vatican II, if it was a true council, why isn't everything perfect? Well, you know what? When they sorted out, you know, that Arianism was a heresy, did everybody then become Orthodox Catholic? Boom, just like that? No. <laughs> no, it took a long time to get that cleared up. You know, in Vatican II was called in response to a lot of factors that were working in the church. And if you read, for instance, the sermons and, and, and writings of, of Catholics before the council, 
you realize that, oh, it was not this idyllic land of, you know, Catholic piety. It was, it was a mess in its own way. Um, and, and there were these underlying issues coming out of the Enlightenments, coming out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the sexual revolution was well underway. These were all things that were going on that the church had to formulate a response to and did. And, but just the fact of the church forming a response does not in itself change those cultural trajectories that were unfolding. The sexual revolution was going to be a train wreck, regardless of what Vatican II said. You know, so we have to realize that these cultural waves are bigger than, than us. So we can't just look at it and say, well, what, what happened immediately afterwards? We have to say, well, this is part of an ongoing, again, flow of culture, and now we need to learn how to engage with that culture. And, of course, part of the issue, too, is, again, this is historically very recent. You know, that whole idea of the spirit of Vatican II is not the same thing as what the council documents actually put forward. Like, so many of the things that were done liturgically are actually contrary to you know, what was intended. And that's just people hijacking it for their own, their own agendas. That's a different thing. Um, so there's a lot going on here. And I think we need to, again, be alert to the, the deeper cultural issues and in one sense, step back and say, okay, let's not, let's not fixate on the process. Let's look at the larger picture and say, what's going on in the culture and how has the church guided us to respond and then let's do something right <laughs> i had father blake brighton who uh writes for word on fire uh back in episode 33 so a while back now talking about what vatican II really says because he spent some time studying those documents and it's a fantastic uh, discussion i want to ask you one last question as we close you mentioned earlier how becoming catholic was the best thing that you had done and might ever do and i wonder i mean maybe you can't but if you could ex- Tell us in a, in a nutshell, because uh, I, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that idea, and it, it may seem strange to somebody who thinks of the Catholic Church as just a different denomination in a sea of Christian denominations, but there's a fundamental difference that I found, I think you found too, and so many Catholic converts find. What, what makes you say that it was the best thing that you have ever done? Why do you, why do you feel that way? You know, and that's, it's a difficult question. Um, and I think at the, I, I say this at the end of my memoir, I say, I'm going to spend the rest of my life figuring out what that means. And I meant that. Um, and I think you hit it with that point that the Catholic Church is not just another denomination. Um, it's, it's not. It's the church. And it is the church that has the sacraments. Um, it is the church that gives the authority to its priests to forgive my sins, to really forgive them, not just say it's okay. Um, It's the church where when I go into a church and I see the tabernacle, I know that Jesus is present in his body. He is really physically there. And when I receive him, you know, at mass, I am receiving the actual physical body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Lord, not a symbol, not just a spiritual feeling. It's the reality. And it's a reality that's not dependent on how I feel about it. Um, you know, as Monsignor Knox, uh, Ronald Knox, a wonderful Catholic writer, um, talks about 
how we might get spiritual consolations at times. He calls them consolations, these moments when we're deeply moved by, say, receiving a sacrament. And he says something very wise. He says, don't expect them. Don't expect them. They may come. They may not. You might get them every now and then or never. And that that's okay. And that objective reality of the sacraments that when I receive, it is the Lord. It's not dependent on my mood or my emotions or even whether I'm aware that it's the Lord. I know it. That objective reality it makes everything different. Um, and I, I think, you know, now I've, I've been a Catholic um, long enough that, that I think that's at the heart of that sense of it being the best thing that I've ever done because this is, it is the organic body. It's where grace is freely operative as God intends it. Um, and being able to be receiving grace through the sacraments and, and being part of that life it's organic. It's a living, breathing spiritual reality. And there is really no way to, to know that until you are part of it. It's one of those things that is purely experiential. Um, and it's also partly something that you have to abandon yourself into. Because I could very easily have seen myself as a, as a Catholic you know, holding myself back and being just, just with the intellect and, and say, well, I, I agree to this or maybe not to that. And, and holding myself back from it. I, I know myself well enough to see that that was a possibility. And I'm really grateful. I have had good devout Catholic friends who've helped me very early on, helped me to see, no, this is a letting go. This is an opening up. It's, you've got to, you, you've got to be all in. Um, and that, sense of being all in is what allows you to be really integrated into the body. And I think that organic sense, as much as I can put it into words, is is what I'm talking about when I say that it is the best thing that I have done or will ever do. <laughs> That's so well said. Listen, this has been an absolute pleasure or privilege to speak to you. I want to thank you uh, truly. Uh, where can listeners go to find out more about uh, your books, more about your speaking, uh, things you're writing? Uh, where do you want to point them to to find out more uh, about what you're doing? Well, for my work um, at Word on Fire, in, in general, you can go to the Word on Fire Institute and find out all sorts of good things about the Institute training Catholics to evangelize. Um, for my own particular work and my own particular writing, um, you can go to my website, which is hollyordway.com. Pretty straightforward. Um, and that's where I have various links to things that I've written and updates about, you know, books that are coming up, including my new book that will be coming out in January, which is on Tolkien. Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. So I'm very excited about that. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much. I want to say God bless you. God bless the fantastic work you are doing for the church. And thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. I appreciate so much an hour of your time every week. It's a real blessing for me to know that you are out there listening and learning, hopefully, and, and thinking new things and growing in your faith and your understanding of the Catholic Church. So, thank you. Thanks for listening. 
The website is thecordialcatholic.com. Check out show notes there and check out show notes in your podcatching app as well for links to Holly Ordway's fantastic website and all the resources that she has there too. Two of my favorite books are written by her. (laughs) They're fantastic. Check those out too in the show notes. I'm Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and send your feedback, your emails, your complaints, your questions, whatever you'd like to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys and write back to as many emails as I can. Thanks so much, guys. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic to support this show on a monthly basis. Join the community there of patrons who help to underwrite this show with their financial contributions. You guys are fantastic, and you guys help make this thing go and make this thing grow. Thanks, guys. PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for a one-time donation can be anything from a dollar to a hundred dollars, and you have my thanks for also helping support this show. It all goes right back into the show. Friends, thank you for listening. Know that I'm praying for you. Please, please pray for me, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you so much so much for listening. God bless, guys. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial cafe. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.